Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Meryn Gidda. And I'm Josh Lowe. And each week we take a look at the big stories in the U.S. and what they mean for the rest of the world. So this week, we're looking at Donald Trump's budget, which is kind of one of the big political stories uh, over there. Um, but in particular, we're looking at how it's going to impact on America's role in the wider world, because there's quite a lot of proposals. And at this point, they are just proposals, which will affect uh, America's funding for aid programs, international institutions, uh, all of that kind of thing. Exactly, because Donald Trump's, I mean, if you want to boil down his budget to, to one main point, it's that he really wants to amp up the U.S.'s defense spending, which is kind of a, a strange thing to want to do in many respects, because the U.S. already spends more on defense than the next seven highest spending countries combined. And in order to pay for this, he is going to, as Josh says, slash away at many foreign aid programs. He's also going to cut a bunch of domestic programs as well. Now, that might sound quite good if you're some of Trump's base who maybe think that foreign aid is overspent, we need to start putting America first and all of that. But of course, foreign aid spending isn't just money chucked out into the void. It's money used to firstly help millions of people. And secondly, of course, to advance American foreign policy priorities. If those ones aren't being advanced through that kind of spending, then it's going to need to be done somewhere else. And it's not entirely clear what's going to replace it. Exactly. And some of Trump's own defense team, General Mattis, for example, have, have stressed the importance of foreign aid in terms of preserving national security for the US. Anyway, Josh, I think that's probably enough from us. We've got some great guests here with us, so I'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Alex Thier, and I'm the executive director at the Overseas Development Institute here in London. And I'm Leslie Vinjamori. I am an associate professor of international relations at SOAS and an associate fellow on the US program at Chatham House. So we've seen some of these proposals from Trump. Obviously, uh, all the detail isn't yet. Some of it might not go into the final budget. But so much of it is focused on cutting um, various kinds of foreign spending. If all of it were to go through, does this represent a kind of total retreat from the world almost for America? It feels like um, this is kind of Trump really pulling back a lot of the kind of soft power that America has. Yeah, I mean, if these cuts went through as they are currently projected, uh, it would be catastrophic, I think, for, for U.S. foreign assistance. And in fact, for a lot of uh, what the world does to reduce poverty and to deal with fragile states and climate change and all of the challenges 
that we face. Uh, not only is the United States the world's largest donor in terms of the scale of the amount of assistance that the U.S. provides, uh, but it has also traditionally played the role of a leader in goading others to give, to join funds together, to support the United Nations, the World Bank, and other multilateral institutions. And if you see that system pulling apart, um, it will literally mean that millions of people who are getting life-saving treatments, who are getting access to education, uh, who are in refugee camps around the world, uh, will stop receiving that assistance. Um, I think it's one of the probably worst cuts uh, imaginable uh, that they could have proposed. I think the key word that you said, of course, is if. I think it is extremely unlikely that the budget will go through in its current form. But remember, the thing about Donald Trump is that he wants to keep the budget level. So rather than thinking about the importance of America's soft power, its investment in diplomacy and foreign aid, humanitarian relief, he's thinking about how to increase the military budget, the hard power part of the budget, but to keep things in line. So he's making a whole series of cuts, not only to the State Department, USAID, the World Bank, the UN system, but also domestically to some really core programs in America. Um, and this is all part of wanting to keep that budget level so that he can stay true to many of the promises he made on the campaign trail. I mean, I think it's a great point, but to, to put those comparisons in perspective, currently, U.S. foreign assistance is about 120th of the size of the current military budget. Um, so cuts to foreign assistance, like domestic programs in arts and education, are a tiny, tiny fraction of the budget. Uh, and yet, I believe, have an outsized importance in the impact that they have around the world. So cutting a billion dollars out of uh, money to stop people from getting AIDS and malaria or helping girls who don't have access to education go to school, uh, if you compare that same amount of money to an already $600 billion Pentagon budget, um, it's just not comparison. The marginal advantages are small. And how much pressure is Trump under to, to boost defense spending? Because I know that um, Senator McCain, when Trump originally said however much he wanted to increase spending by defense spending, that is, Senator McCain said actually it needs to be far, far higher. Um, and I just wondered, in, in terms of these hawkish people, are they really amping up the pressure on Trump to, to spend even more on the military? I think there's a diversity of views on on how much the military budget needs to be increased. And I think I, I, I would argue that this is really Trump's vision, right? He wants to increase the, the military. The, he wants to have a very assertive um, line in terms of his foreign policy that emphasizes America's hard power. But I think I think what you said is exactly right, that the, that the retreat from an investment in America's diplomacy is very short-sighted. The problem is, of course, that the public tends to be very uninformed about the amount of money that we spend in the United States on foreign aid. They think it's extremely high when, in fact, it's hovering around 1.7 yeah. most of the time. I mean, the, the, there's, there are surveys every year that show that the average person in the American public believes that 25% of the federal budget is spent on foreign aid. And the truth oh is that it is 1%. Uh, so we always joke that you think it's 25. Okay, we'll take 10. 1% of the US budget is still a significant amount. So in terms of looking at countries that will be affected by this, because for them, it, 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 it is a huge amount of money. Do we have a sense yet of which country might be worst affected? Are there any particular nations that we should be looking at here? 
I think that uh, while we don't exactly know which countries, I think that we certainly know that there are some programs that are under threat. So, for example, uh, one of the most important things that U.S. assistance has done for decades is to support uh, family planning. Uh, for women to have access to health care, to have access to family planning, to be able to make the choices that they want to make about how and when to have children. Um, and that's, that's been universal and, in fact, in many ways bipartisan for, for many years, that kind of support. Um, I think that there's a real danger that that support will go away. Um, and that is support that meets many of the poorest countries in the world. And, you know, it's really important to understand that this is not just about family planning. Family planning is one of the most fundamental things that affects everything else in development. So when women have fewer children, those children tend to be better nourished. They tend to get better access to education. Women tend to get more access to the labor market. Um, and all of these good things go together to produce economic growth and healthier people and more stable societies. And if you undo that, if you pull, start pulling those pieces out, um, then you are potentially pulling down like a tower of Jenga blocks because uh, a lot of things will fail as a result of that lack of investment. And here, I think especially the proposed cuts to the United Nations budget are very serious and potentially very grave with respect to peacekeeping missions in particular and humanitarian relief. So we can begin to think about the kinds of countries that will be affected here, Yemen, South Sudan, and others that have been in the news a lot perhaps will be receiving a lot less assistance through the UN-funded programs. Yeah. And this this tie to uh, American long-term national security and foreign policy objectives is so strong that immediately when this news of proposed cuts came out, you had 120-some generals uh, and admirals, former, writing letters saying, don't do this. You have business leaders stepping up, religious leaders stepping up. Uh, there has actually, over the last uh, 10 years in particular, this strong, growing bipartisan consensus that aid and development actually promote national security for the United States. The things that people are worried about, things like migration, things like disease outbreaks, uh, things like terrorism, our aid speaks to all of those things. That's something that's often forgotten in this, isn't it? It's, it there's, there's not just a benefit for the people who are receiving this money. There's potentially a benefit for the U.S. itself and its objectives. I mean, there's a clip we've got from uh, Trump um, talking about how he sees the kind of role of the U.S. in preserving global security. Uh, it's talking about what, uh, what, what the U.S. Army needs to start doing. We must ensure that our courageous service men and women have the tools they need to deter war, and when called upon to fight in our name, only do one thing, win. We have to win. We have to start winning wars again. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So a pretty um, simplistic uh, view of uh, kind of American foreign policy goals there. Um, he's talking about boosting national security purely by funding the military. Um, what, why, is he, why is he wrong? I mean, I presume it sounds like you think he is wrong, Alex. So uh, what's, what's the problem? Well, I mean, you know, I worked closely with his new national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, in Afghanistan, who was focused on trying to combat corruption uh, and improve uh, governance within Afghanistan because he saw that as fundamental to our broader military objectives. Similarly, his Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, same thing, comes out and says it's really important for us to support effective development and effective diplomacy uh, because that means less uh, troops are needed ultimately. Um, and so I, I think that while the, the president may be misguided in some of his understanding of these things. The people around him understand it deeply. And remember that diplomacy is about long-term investment in relationship building. It's very difficult in the short term to come up with indicators that give you very easily measurable outcomes if your window for assessing outcomes is very short-term, two months, three months, four months. And so to persuade somebody who seems to have the inclinations that Donald Trump has, which is to make deals, to have transactions, to be able to immediately announce a result, to continue to invest in long-term cultural exchanges, educational exchanges, these are things that are, that are being cut in this proposed budget. Um, it's a very difficult thing to persuade him to. Now, I, I did want to say, though, I think it's it's important not to deny the fact that investing in the military budget isn't important. It is, it is absolutely crucial. You talk about NATO, um, America's investment in its um, ability to be effective in the South China Seas and East China Seas with respect to questions of deterrence in many different theaters is extremely important. One doesn't want to deny that. But the question is, is what? How do you round that out? What What does the broader picture look like? Well, I was just going to say, you know, like we don't did not make it sound ideological. Let's just talk about like hard economics, okay? For the United States, nine of our thirteen largest trading partners were 
major recipients of foreign aid. There is a long-term connection between how we in the West, we in the UK, we in the United States prosper and trade and build new industries and build new markets and the ability of more and more countries to lift themselves up um, or something like education. I read something fascinating today, which is that American universities, one of the biggest sort of exports in the United States is actually that we educate people from all over the world and they pay top dollar for that. And now they are having a hard time getting visas. They are not coming to the United States as readily yeah. uh, as a result of some of these policies. I mean, there's just real economic hardship ahead um, if we reverse some of the importance of these investments. Yeah. And I know um, on that point, Harvard, Yale and Stanford have a lawsuit right pending against Donald Trump to do with the Muslim ban because of the fact they know it's going to affect their, their students. But you touched on something kind of interesting, which is this is going to affect lots of other countries. This is not... A a US-only budget, really. So what is the knock-on effect on the global economy? I mean, how significant is it if the US goes very protectionist and stops investing overseas? What happens to, to the rest of us? Well, I mean, just two obvious examples, right? Look at what happened with Ebola in West Africa. Um, one of the things uh, that the reason that that happened was because the health systems in West Africa were very weak, right? But that could have spread much farther than it did. People look at nearby Nigeria, almost 200 million people, much more involved in the global economy than those other countries, and a potential catastrophic number of people getting that disease. So you look at the potential global economic consequences of a major pandemic outbreak if we don't have the response capabilities to handle that. And it is, I think, very crucial, you know, for, for years. Years, for decades, really, America has played such a fundamental role as a leader in, in many of these areas. And so the symbolism of seeing America not only retreat and take a step back, which it has done actually on and off during the post-Cold War period, but to take a very active public role, to, to, to use language that, that actively walks away from this kind of leadership is, I think, very damaging uh, globally. And, and it makes it harder for leaders that might want to invest to persuade the people in their own countries that they should invest when America isn't. Because, of course, in the past, Britain could turn to its people or the French or the Germans and point to America as a leader and then go back home and ask for more. And now it becomes a much harder game, I think, for a number of countries that are facing very serious pushback domestically for a series of reasons, the migration crisis in Europe, Brexit in the UK, um, and the, the language and the rhetoric and the retreat of America under this president have um, not helped any of that. In fact, it's made it much more difficult for European leaders. And another way that America's sort of traditionally, uh, or in recent decades anyway, engaged with the world is its relationship with the UN, which is an institution that's going to potentially suffer if, if this budget comes through, as, as the proposals say. Um, I mean, we all remember probably what Trump thinks of the UN, but we've got a clip just in case uh, anyone, anyone doesn't. The UN has such tremendous potential not living up to its potential. There is such tremendous potential, but it is not living up. When do you see the United Nations solving problems? They don't. They cause problems. So if it lives up to the potential, it's a great thing. And if it doesn't, it's a waste of time and money. 
So there we go. That's Trump uh, giving his prescription to the UN there. <laughs> if it solves problems, it's good. But currently, it doesn't solve problems. Um, we don't know exactly what he's planning to do with it in this budget. But we do know he's talking about, for example, uh, capping spending on peacekeeping, um, potentially cutting funding for UN climate change programs. I mean, what would these sorts of things, the sorts of uh, approach that he seems to want to take to the UN, do uh, to it as an organization? I mean, how is it going to adapt to these sorts of things? Uh, well, you know, I do think that the UN is like uh, Churchill's quote about democracy, that it's the worst alternative except for all of the others. Uh, and the UN is a, is a complicated organization. Um, but the fact that you have all of these countries in there together focusing on global problems, there's just no replacement for it. Um, if the U.S. were to cut its contributions by 40 percent, um, it would have a very serious impact on the ability of the U.N. to operate. And you look at you know, the fact that we have 65 million forcibly displaced people, the highest number since World War II. Uh, it is the UN uh, with a lot of NGOs and others, but really the UN that is out there on the front lines coordinating that assistance, raising the issues, raising the money, coming up with new standards to deal with it. Um, we simply have no replacement for that. Um, and it the, the loss of that capability, again, would be catastrophic, not only in terms of some of these big international issues that we're talking about, but let's just think about all of the people who have nothing, who are fleeing their homes because they are poor and in danger and unprotected, um, the last thing that they need is less protection and less hope. It's very easy, isn't it, to stand up and simply say, the United Nations doesn't work, it causes problems. Of course, it's, it, it's much more difficult to get into the weeds of what what does it do, what has it done well, what has it done less well, and how do we begin to reform some of those questions? I mean, the question of UN reform has been on the table at many levels for a very long period of time. It's an important question. But to throw an international organization out with the assumption that you can create anything um, that would begin to achieve similar goals is hopelessly naive. But I mean, if we know anything about Donald Trump is that he doesn't ever engage with the finer details. So it's not surprising that he's sort of reduced the UN to it just causes problems. Another thing that he's refusing to engage with the finer details or indeed the truth of is, is climate change. It's interesting because when he had that interview with the New York Times, I don't know if you remember, it was the one that was on the record. He sort of um, oscillated in what he was saying on climate change. He was he sort of said that, that climate change is a thing and then he kind of backtracked. But now it seems to be the US is not going to take action on climate change, which is something a lot of Republicans support. I mean, that is deeply worrying because, again, that is something that's going to affect the rest of the world. The U.S. is such a big carbon emitter. If you look at the climate change projections and what it's actually really going to take to limit us to 1.5 degrees, which was this aspiration that came out of the Paris climate talks in terms of the future warming, uh, what everybody says is that, you know, it's not, there's not some big thing. There's not some silver bullet that's going to change this. It's tiny little wedges along the way. And the problem with all of those wedges is that they start at a point and they expand outward. So if we give up now on uh, the effort to reduce 
carbon emissions. Uh, it's not just that it hurts us for four years. It hurts us for decades because we're losing ground constantly. Um, and there's all of these fascinating things going on around the world where people are trying to transition to a green economy, but it actually takes policy and money. It's not just happening on its own. Someone has to make a decision. We're going to invest in this. We're going to make it more expensive to do coal than solar. And then all of a sudden the markets take off and run with it. But if you say, no, we need to save uh, coal and we don't really believe this makes a difference, then you're potentially killing all of that energy and entrepreneurship, which is exploding around the world. I think there is a real question. Um, certainly, it's something that I'm curious about is to to what extent the private sector within the United States and obviously beyond will continue to push forward with environmental friendly policies, regardless of what Trump and the people around him decide to do. Now, my understanding is that there is a lot of positive momentum across not only the private sector in the United States, but also at the state and local levels. So I do think that this is a space to watch um, to see whether it becomes a political battle and, and whether there, there are forces for positive change and to what extent he is able to block all progress and, and, and quite how, you know, how damaging will this be? You think about how much policy matters, right? Californians buy more cars than anybody else in the United States because it's a huge state. For decades, California has constantly pushed the edge of lowering vehicle emissions, and they were given that ability to do that outside of the federal standard, and it has driven the market. And if that gets stopped now, which, which Trump is threatening to do, you potentially have this rollback. And of course, are the vehicle manufacturers alone going to say we want to do this even if we're not required? It's questionable. Very. And so kind of across the piece then, it's quite a difficult question to answer in advance. But uh, is this sort of overreach or is this awesome? Is the broad sweep of these measures the kind of thing that Trump's base is going to be applauding him for? Well, you know, I think the biggest problem, look, we the work that we do at the Overseas Development Institute every day is trying to look at investments and figure out what's working where and why and do more of that and less of the things that aren't working. And what people are often concerned about with foreign assistance is that uh, one, it's good to do it, but is it really working? Um, and the truth of the matter, this incredible thing that so few people know is that in the last 25 years, the percentage of people who are living in extreme poverty around the world, people who don't have enough to eat every day, has been cut in half. And so we are actually making incredible progress in things like this. And the number of children who were illiterate, who are now in school and literate, has shot way up. The number of children under five who 15 years ago were dying from preventable diseases, 12 million children a year. That number as of last year is now 6 million children a year. 6 million children saved every year as a result of these types of interventions. And so I think one of the challenges that we face is how do we convince people that programs like Meals on Wheels, programs like those abroad that I'm talking about, actually have deep impact? Because I think when people understand that and then they think it's only a penny per dollar in the federal budget, they would say, yeah, I think it's probably good. But unless people understand those things, then we're probably going to continue having this discussion. So I, I think that you've raised a really fundamental question, and it, and it gets at one problem, which is that, of course, it's much easier to cut foreign assistance programs than it is to cut domestic programs, because there is no natural constituency for foreign aid in any of its discrete categories. You might have experts who are committed to it, who believe in it. But in terms of just raw politics, right, political organization, lobbying, interest groups, and the base, the so-called base that we keep talking about, 
um, that's that's much stronger. That pushback will be much stronger or should be much stronger on any of the domestic cuts that he's proposing. So the Pell Grant um, is is under threat. This has been very important for funding low-income students at, to pursue university studies. Um, work study, another assistance program that has really helped uh, low-income students in higher education, all sorts of programs. And it will be surprising if at some point those people, many of whom will have voted for Donald Trump, don't start to question whether or not this is a president who really supports their interests. At the same time, Donald Trump has been clever on certain issues. He's maintaining Medicare, right? He's very reluctant to roll back certain entitlements because he knows that that is his base. Nonetheless, the, the budget does propose things that will hurt a number of people that he's really talking to when he's tweeting, right? He's really talking to that 38 or 40 percent that he thinks is very securely with him. So I think one of the things that we have to watch as we begin to get closer to that 100-day mark, because remember, for Donald Trump, like any American president, what they really want to do is push through everything they can in the first 100 days, the so-called honeymoon period, so that they can claim that they really did everything they said that they would do on the campaign trail. Very complicated, unlikely to happen in this case, much more politicized. But I think that he wants to get the message out there. He wants to be able to claim that he's done things. But I suspect a lot of things that are on the table right now simply won't go through. And just finally, because I'm aware that we're, we're running out of time, um, with with Donald Trump's budget, it is only a skinny budget. We still don't have, you know, the full budget. And as we've said, you know, it has to be approved by Congress. How much of it do you think is actually going to get through? Because I, from what I understand, Democrats obviously really don't like this budget. And they have suggested that they could, you know, block it basically in the same way the Republicans blocked them and shut down government for them. But also, you know, a lot of Republicans, you know, the, the Paul Ryan types are not happy with it either because Trump has sort of said when, when the big one comes out that he won't be um, touching Medicare and Medicaid, you know, because he wants to keep his voters happy. So... Trump's budget, I mean, it doesn't seem like much of it is, is going to get approved at the moment. There's a, there's a great quote out there that says the president proposes and the Congress disposes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we also heard uh, another senator say the budget was dead on arrival. I mean, it is the job of the Congress to pass the budget. Um, and it's clear that there's going to be a lot of negotiations between the president's priorities, the Republican leadership priorities, and then those who oppose some of those things. Uh, but I think it's going to look quite different um, than what he proposed initially. But we have to remember that this is not just a budgeting exercise. It's a policymaking exercise. It's a setting the standards exercise. And when we see these attacks both on things that are important internationally, but also domestic funding for arts and education and things like that. Uh, public broadcasting is under heavy fire. Um, it's a real sign of, of things to come. And so I fear that saying, well, the Congress might change it, um, might let people let down their guard. And if anything, this is the time to make sure that the values that underpin not wanting those cuts to go through are heard loud and clear by the, by the public. So thanks so much to Alex and Leslie for coming on. Uh, thanks to everyone at home for listening. Thanks to our producer, as ever, Jordan Saville, who records and edits Newsweek's Foreign Service. Um, you can find us every week on Acast, SoundCloud and iTunes. If you can't wait that long, you can go to newsweek.com or pick up a copy of Newsweek. Thanks very much.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.